And then there's anxiety. Do we hold on to this memory? Do we share it with other people? And I think under that, whether we are writers or not, I think there's constant anxiety about, are we right? Do we even remember it as we think we do? This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, a conversation with poet Saeed Jones about his memoir and about memory. If you can't be confident about your memory, do you even know who you are? Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor. Sometimes the best thing about being on the road for business travel is not being on the road at all. Sometimes hiding away and unwinding in your hotel room is what you need to really get away. That's why I love to stay at AC Hotels by Marriott. The AC guest room provides me with everything I need and nothing I don't. It has all the purposeful design details that matter most. There are plentiful outlets in convenient locations, a spacious bench for luggage storage, and an open closet for easy access. The AC guest rooms are beautiful, they're uncluttered, and they're truly comfortable, letting you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac-hotels.com to learn more. Saeed Jones is a polymath. He is a writer, a poet, a talk show host, a cultural critic, an educator, and a bon vivant. He has won a Pushcart Prize, and his debut poetry collection, Prelude to Bruise, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and was awarded the 2015 Penn Award for Poetry. Saeed just released his highly anticipated memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, and a review from NPR declared, Joan's voice and his sensibility are so distinct that he turns one of the oldest literary genres inside out and upside down. In this memoir, Saeed has developed a -a one-of-a-kind style that is as beautiful as it is powerful, and he has cemented himself as an essential writer for our time. Saeed is here with me today to talk about his life, his work, and his remarkable new book. Saeed, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. Now, Saeed, is it true that you often fantasize about having sex with Paul Newman's ghost? Absolutely. So We're doing it right now. That's why it's you know very convenient being in a, a very complicated um, relationship with a ghost because you just never know what's going on. No one can see. When did this start? <laughs> Um, I, you know, I think I remember probably in college starting to see some of Paul Newman's films or films featuring him. And I think that's around the time I saw Cat and a Hot Tin Roof. Oh, baby. My goodness. And what I find really, truly, I mean, he was very handsome, um, certainly. Um, but also, I think as far as we know, he was a good man. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he stood up for some really important causes that matter now, you know, and I think he would, you know, be a part of the cultural conversation uh, now in a very contemporary way. Uh, he was very kind, had a wonderful reputation. He loved his wife. He loved his dogs, you know, and it's just, it's a real delight that, you know, as we see 
all of these men in Hollywood, you know, now in 2019, it's just like, God, you too, you're a jerk, you're a monster, you're a, you know, and to see this guy who's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm super dead. And uh, nope, still, still pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's kind of amazing given how handsome he was Mm -hmm. and what a star he was. What a star. How much in love with his wife he was. And one of my favorite things that he's been noted to say was that when asked about why he wasn't unfaithful to Mm -hmm. Joanne Woodward, his wife, he said, well, why would I go outside for bologna when I can get steak at home? Yeah, he was just (laughs) madly in love. And, you know, I, I recommend people reading Anne Helen Peterson's writing about him because, of course, he existed in this very controlled, uh, mediated kind of Hollywood tabloid, and, and it's so so it's like heart. It's like, is that for real? Did he really? And it's like, no, yeah, that was. There's something to it. And my goodness, so handsome. Yeah, I mean, just, those eyes are killer. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Saeed, you were born in Memphis. Yes. Now, I understand that your mother named you Saeed because it means happy in Arabic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it has um, relationships to Muslim faith um, and also Persian history, which like intermingle. But yeah, sometimes I'm told, um, often by taxi drivers, to be honest, uh, that it uh, is good or happy and fortunate, uh, which is what my mom always said. Sometimes it's like it's, it's like good news or, or a leader with the good news. Um, so, But yeah, I just, I mean, I've always liked my name. Um, I do remember growing up, you know, when I was very little in Memphis, the Memphis accent is such that Said in Memphis sounds like said. Um, said. Uh-huh, said. And, and I remember being really young, like kindergarten, I have memories of like, I wonder if my mom thought like I heard ghost or something, the ghost of Paul Newman, because people would say said and I would turn thinking they were speaking to me <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, and then we got to Texas and then like no one could say my name and it was a constant and certainly how to spell it. There are a lot of spellings for the name Said. It's one of actually the most popular names in the world. And then 9-11 happened. Mm. And I was a sophomore in high school at that point, well used to people misspelling my name, not knowing how to say it. Da, da, da. And suddenly everyone knew how to say the name Said. Uh, and then Lost, the television show came and one of the kids. Yeah, so it was very, it's really interesting. And I, you know, I've bonded with so many people. You kind of end up naturally having to tell the story of yourself to people, you know, from a young age. Like I remember, you know, lunch ladies, Saeed, that's a funny name for a little boy. And it, and yeah, that I was like, I'm just trying to get my macaroni and cheese, please. Um, but you know, you, you have this experience from an early age um, of feeling different. Yeah. I've always had this, this, this dance um, with it that also I think a lot of people have with their names, maybe. You were raised by your single mom mm-hmm. in Louisville, Texas. Yep. Not Louisville, but Louisville. <laughs> it really confused me when I went I to know. school in Kentucky and I was like, oh no. <laughs> um, she had a job with Delta yeah. as you were growing up. She was also a Buddhist mm-hmm. and her mother, your grandmother, was rather religious, mm-hmm. but she was not a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you to be between those two mm-hmm. sort of fierce uh, points of view? You know, unfortunately, I think this is true for a lot of people you know, faith, religion in our families is um, such a source of division often. Um, Some of my earliest memories as a little kid, probably a toddler actually, are my family arguing with my mom about faith. You know, you're going to go to hell. By the time I was a little older, you know, early teens, um, the conversation, it kind of 
become the silence where people weren't, they just weren't talking anymore. People weren't close and no one would explain why. Um, it just was the way things were, you know? And I, I remember at one point as a kid, like my mom ended up in the hospital and it was like really serious and her family didn't immediately come to take care of her, you know, and, and retrospect now as an adult, Oh my gosh, that says a lot, you know? So by the time I was a teenager, you know, then it became, well, we're not going to have this argument with Carol anymore. She's an adult. She seems really set in her ways. But here's Saeed. He's a teenager. He's acting worldly. He's starting to talk back. He's effeminate. And I, and I think in an interesting way, the worldliness, the sarcasm, the you're just being too much of a teenager was a, allowed them to not have to say head on, we think you're going to be gay. Mm. And we want to stop that. So instead, it was kind of framed as like, you're going to go to hell like your mom. And it was like, what does that mean? Um, so yeah, it was it was really awful. And it led to a lot of hurt, more silence, because I think, you know, it just got so painful that I also distanced myself from those family members. And we have since made up and we have a better relationship, but we will never be as close as we could have been um, had this this conflict not been a part of our lives. You realized you were gay at quite a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You've written about how as a kid you realized that being Black can get you killed, and so can being gay, and combined being a gay Black boy is a death wish. Mm-hmm. Um, so you felt you needed to hide who you were. Yeah, I. you're right. I mean, um, from... My earliest, most vague, kind of blurry fantasies, it was always boys and and men, you know. I I just didn't really fantasize about women's bodies. I thought it was rude, actually. (laughs) I remember... um, So polite. Yeah, and I, you know, when I was hosting AM to DM, the morning show for BuzzFeed, which I did for a couple of years, I got to interview Tyra Banks. And I told her that I was like, you know, I remember when you were on the the Sports Illustrated cover, because that was history making. And uh, my guy friends at school were like, uh-huh, and I want, and I remember, and I like checked myself, but I remember thinking, well, it would be rude to see any more of Tyra. And that's when I was like, oh, <laughs> I think, it, yeah. So I didn't have question about attraction. It was always like how is this going to work like in terms of a life you know will i ever have love will i ever get married because at the time i mean this is you know 2000 to 2004 for example that's when i'm in high school marriage equality certain wasn't even on the docket would i ever be able to be a father um would if i do have a family if i do find this man will i be able to introduce him to my family will i be able to you know bring them home for thanksgiving i don't know and so it felt like America's already perilous. You have people like Matthew Shepard or James Bird Jr. being killed just for who they are anyway. But also, even if I'm not killed, am I just signing up for misery by being myself? Like, that just seemed like a, and it is, an unfair choice. That's not a choice. I know that you were really impacted by the deaths of Matthew Shepard Mm -hmm. and James Bird Jr. And I read that you um, stated that just as some cultures have a hundred words for snow, there should be a hundred words in our language for all the ways a black boy can lie awake at night. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. did you cope? Were you, were you always in a state of fear? Um, not necessarily. And I don't know if I would have s- 
said that if you asked me at the time, like, Saeed, are you scared? I would have been like, what are you talking about? You know, I was a very creative kid. Um, I was reading very, very passionately, particularly like when I was in middle school, we didn't have the internet dial up. And then dial up comes like right at the beginning of high school. And of course, it was so slow and you couldn't actually use your landline phone and be on the computer, you know, so it was like, it it took a while before that was even a, a part. So I was just reading a lot of books. I started writing and I had a really rich creative life. And I think, though I didn't realize I was coping, I, I think my writing and or reading and what became my writing life as a kid manifested in this like rich interiority I had. My I have such an overactive imagination. That's just why, yeah, you know, now I'm married to Paul Newman's ghost. Um, you know, like I just had like elaborate fantasies and everything in a world to myself. So I think that kept me from feeling dead inside and, and kept me from feeling that the way America was outlining the borders of my identity and like barbed wire that, that like they were never going to get to who I really, really am. What is your first memory of writing? Um, I think the the first thing I remember writing with the intention to share it to someone was uh, in middle school. We watched the movie Clue in school, the original movie. And and then I think a short story, I remember Mrs. Scarlet, and I think it was like to learn vocabulary words. So it was like Miss Scarlet sauntered across the room. I remember loving Miss Scarlet and, and wanting, and I remember, and I and I was drawing. I, my mom was in fashion when I was, you know, before I was born and I loved that a part of her history. So I was always drawing women in dresses. So I was like writing poems about Miss Scarlet and drawing like all these women in red dresses. And, and so that's kind of where I started and then the Scream movies happened, and my mom I, let me watch them. And so the work that I then started sharing with my classmates, that I was like, I've, I've got a new story. They were all slasher short stories, I guess is what you would call them. It was basically Scream, but it would, I would like set it at our school, and I would, or some horrible murderer, would be brutally murdering me and all my friends. And the more I liked you, the more elaborate and awful your death was. And, <laughs> you know, kids are so crazy. Uh, and so we all loved it. We thought it was great and I was like oh this is awesome and like oh when you put the the knife in my forehead and the blood oh that was so awesome thank you Saeed and then the school shootings started happening because then it's like Columbine there was a shooting in Paducah Kentucky it was all over the news and as we're kind of seeing again now a new cycle where everyone was like well it's the video games they're playing it's the clothes they're wearing are you looking at your son's notebook does he have a notebook and so I stopped writing that. And then I started writing about Greek mythology. It was much safer. <laughs> so you, you wrote in the voices of Penelope, Eurydice, yeah. and Medusa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what made you choose that, those I characters? Mean, one, you, know, I, you know, so many writers, Daniel Mendelssohn certainly, you know, have, have examined the relationship between gay men and Greek mythology. <laughs> so there's a long tradition there. And again, I think it's a fantasy life. You know, these, these myths about beautiful people literally being swept off their feet and off the earth, you know, and they case of a lot of these myths by these gods and i think maybe in the way that when we think more conventionally about femininity and like the princess idea i I think for you know gay boys it was like oh maybe apollo will show up one day but i didn't feel comfortable writing candidly about my attraction as a boy to other boys or men but i could write about penelope longing you know for years and years for odysseus you know now if i were to if you know look at some of those poems and i still have the notebook that i wrote in the most you know it's obvious i'm writing i can almost figure out who the crush is based on the imagery but it, it was a way of again creating this protected interior almost like garden of richness 
you've written that you loved poetry then, mm. but not so much because of the language and the images, but mm-hmm. because you enjoyed the control. Yes. So what do you mean by control? You and I, because you are a woman and I am a black gay man, will never feel totally at home, I think, in a loud sports bar. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, that is, and there are so many spaces like that where it's just, there's always, and it's not to say you can't have fun in that space. I go tailgating and I love, you know, all that. But it's like, I have to read the room and you do too, right? And so I think on the page, we are an absolute control. And I think of pages as spaces, right? Mm-hmm. As a room, you know, where you're going to fill it with your art, you know, it is right. And, and so you are absolutely in control and it's really cheap, you know, like in, in your home here is very, you know, it's beautiful and you can control it, but to write a poem costs nothing and, and nothing, uh, nothing is impossible in that space. So I think that's what I, it was an, a, a response to the total lack of control. And then, yeah, as I got older and I kept writing and I'm then formally studying it in college and then graduate school, you know, as a craft, you know, I think the control of language, literally punctuation, it's so specific. And my mind is just all about getting the line right and then the line break and then the next line are the end words and the beginning words you know and that's okay okay we can now go to the second line okay third line no we messed up go back to the beginning it's so granular um, and I don't know where I'm gonna go at the end of a line break I don't know what comes next so it's genuine surprise and a, a real magic um, and my head is down and which is why I think if you read my poems particularly in Prelude to Bruise you know there is real suspense you get to the end of the poem and you're like oh my gosh you know there's almost like kind of a plot twist that maybe you know like if i'm drawing from clue or or these slasher you know i've always enjoyed surprising someone but it's because when i start a poem i have no idea where it's going to end and then i kind of look up after i've worked on a poem i'm like where am i what happened you know and so i think it's always been a refuge for me even if the subject matter of my poems generally speaking is fraught is harrowing. All of my writing is in different ways, but the artistic experience is so vibrant and joyful. When you're in that state Mm -hmm. and you don't know what is coming next, Mm -hmm. where is it coming from? Mm. Sound. And I, I think a lot about things I've already written. Am I repeating a word that I've used in another poem recently? Is there a better way I can say that? You know, um, instead of saying like what we do to each other, okay, what we make of each other, mm, what we ruin of, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just constantly, yeah. So I think a lot of it, it's, it's problem solving. It's trying to be self-critical, like say, come on, how much you've used, you're overusing that that adjective. Like, I know you like the word saunter. You need to find another way to describe moving. You need to, you know, so keep going, get better. Yeah. So it's almost like athletic, you know, I think, you know, and, and it's really driven by a kind of perfection that I, I want that I know you can't actually achieve, but if that's the ideal, I think pushing myself to go further, to be more rigorous, to really question every decision is what leads to the surprise, the awe, the whoa, you know, that is kind of revealed when you look at the work as a whole. It's a bunch of micro whoa moments. Yeah. When you were in high school, Mm -hmm. you were a star on the debate team. Mm -hmm. You were also on the National Honor Society. You were the president of the National Honor Society. You were in the theater club, the Writers Guild, and the tennis team. Yeah. Very briefly in tennis. I was so bad at it. You were a slacker. Yeah. (laughs) 
You know, at one point, I actually got grounded from extracurricular activities. Why? Yeah. It wasn't that I my grades were suffering or anything. My speech and debate coach, who I, I just saw a few weeks ago, she came to my Dallas book event, and it was nice to see her. You know, I think she, she had a very holistic view of my education. She really was my advocate at that school, you know? And so I think she saw, rightfully, that I was trying by being in all of these extracurricular groups like at one point it was like 10 different groups i left out some i was in asia club like some of them like made no sense things i wasn't even passionate about i think i wanted to be liked and i wanted to feel like i belonged and that i was of use and i think my speech and debate coach sally sally squib i think she saw that i was spreading myself too thin she called my mom and talked about it and was like, do you know how many groups and activities? Do you understand your son? And my mom was often working like two jobs. Um, so yeah, I would be getting to school an hour, sometimes two hours early for some uh, groups and activities and meetings and then staying, you know, maybe school would end at 4.05 and I might not be leaving until 6.30. I do think I was trying to develop some kind of social life, right? Some kind of... Some kind of sense where I felt I could be, you know, you, the one of the arcs of the book is like, how am I going to be my whole self, you know? And it was like, well, I can be 50% of myself in this room, 60% of myself in this room. So I, I think I was like, yeah, trying to find some kind, and I think we all do this at, at that age, but trying to find some kind of comfort maybe um, in the room. And then often, you know, my school was huge. So I think being in all those little groups, like small groups of 10 or eight kids, um, I think was actually pretty important because it kind of gave you a sense of feeling like someone knew your name amidst this like kind of sea of, of high school students. You visited New York City with your mom when it serendipitously happened to be Pride Week. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, you saw people who were out and about and able mm -hmm. to be themselves. You decided to apply to go to New York University and you got in. Mm -hmm. But you ultimately weren't able to afford it. So mm -hmm. you went to Western Kentucky University for your bachelor's degree on a full scholarship for speech and debate. So those after school Some activities of it did pay off. really yeah, helped. It wasn't for nothing. <laughs> you were also the first person in your family family to go to college. Mm. So how hard was it to shift from your New York City dreams to Kentucky? In some ways, not hard. I remember um, there was like a lot of hills on our campus, a lot of green space. And I remember our one of those first few nights, just it was really late and there was a water fountain on by one of the buildings and just laying and looking at the stars and my head in the grass and the smell of it. And I remember thinking, I am so happy here. I'm so happy here, you know, and and um, and then, you know, we were already living paycheck to paycheck and the entire point of not going was that we couldn't afford it. So it's probably likely had I gone, it would have been threadbare. I would have been struggling to make ends meet. You know, I, there was no speech scholarship opportunity, for example, at NYU. It would have been all loans. Um, and we see how that goes. I will say, you know, I think things caught up with me. <laughs> In Kentucky, you know, the I was out immediately with all of my speech friends and then in classes and everything. So that was fine. But I think the culture there and probably at a lot of America at that point, because this is now 2004, and people were fine with me being gay, but then I think being a sexual being, being as candid about desire and sexuality as my straight friends, and certainly straight male friends, women never get to be as candid as straight boys get to be, it would start to be like, ooh, Saeed's radical, or ooh, you're wild. And, and so I started struggling with that, and I would 
deal with it by trying to own it. Like, yeah, I am wild. I am radical. I've had sex 5,000 times in the last hour, you know, just trying to be like as, as, um, out and as loud as possible because I think I thought that if I could, you know, be myself with volume, you know, figurative and literal, that that pride that I was performing would act upon me, that it would kind of, that I could like soak it back in, if that makes sense. Um, If you you stated it loud enough, you'd believe it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, a common adage, fake it until you make it. There is something to be said for performing confidence. You can maybe get a few steps further down the road, but you know, sometimes I think what we're faking, if we don't genuinely believe it or believe that it's possible, it it can um, kind of, backhand us almost. Yeah, I, I often say, make it until you make it. Yeah, that's that's, that's a much better <laughs> adage. <laughs> well, because while you're making something, you're not faking it. Right. You're just attempting it. Uh-huh. You know, for a long time growing up, I mean, just admitting that it was hard to be yourself just felt like a a risk not worth, worth oh taking. absolutely i mean i grew up in such a state of both cultural and personal homophobia i didn't come out until i was 50 mm. so i totally mm. understand you said that gay wasn't a word that you could imagine actually hearing from your mom right. um that if you pictured her moving her lips aids came out instead and you mm-hmm. finally came out to her in 2005 when you were 19 years old and you were on the phone you mm-hmm. were walking to class and you described the experience this way You said, I had come out to my mother as a gay man, but within minutes I realized I had not come out to her as myself. So can you elaborate? What did you mean by that? Well, as a queer person, I just feel that the, the coming out narrative is so simplistic. It's so limited because what does it mean? You know, what kind of gay? What are, what, you know, it, it is, it is certainly a vital bit of information, but it is far more important to the straight person than mm-hmm. it is to the person saying it. To them, it's a, whoa, this is a huge Im- bit of information. I know so much more about you now than I did before. And maybe that's true, but, you know, we know you're coming, we're coming out constantly. You're at the doctor. You, you start a new job. You're kind of reading the room. Is this, you know, like, you know, someone, um, assumes you and your partner are girlfriends or best friends and you've you know it's it is it is literally queer it is fluid it is an ongoing kind of dynamic and of course because i believe in intersectionality it's just part of who we are you know and no one says i'm black you know we don't we don't have this like commandment binary you're not and then you are dynamic for any other part of identity really i think even gender i think we have a little bit more space because it's even like there's space to say i'm a girly girl Mm -hmm. as opposed to whatever um yeah i I came out to my mom. I said, I'm gay. She asked me some, you know, do you use protection? And I was like, yes. Have you had experiences? Yes. Okay. Use protection. Yes. Um, And I did appreciate that because there was no judgment. She didn't say, why are you having, you should, you know, it was just, I think two of the more essential questions an adult should ask their child about sex. Are you having it? You know, are you, you know, um, well-versed or getting, you know, um, healthcare for it? Yeah. Okay. But, you know, are you in love? Mm. Are you dating good men? Who are these men? Do you like them? Do they take you to dinner? Like those questions about the the richness of experience um, that are actually far more important, right? Are you happy? I wasn't, you know? We didn't get to talk about all that, both because I didn't feel, I, I don't know if I felt 
comfortable or I felt that I had the vocabulary to articulate it. But also I think, you know, my mom and many other people of her generation, I don't think they try or want to be homophobic or transphobic, but if they haven't done the reading, and at that time my mother just had not, if they haven't done the work, it's just like a bridge that just like ends with a sudden drop off. And they're just kind of like, I don't know, I guess I wish you well, but I'm going to wave from here while you're in your little boat going off without me. Like, and they think they are helpless as opposed to they are abandoning us um, because that's what it means to say, I'm not going to figure this out. What would you have told her if she had asked you those questions? Yeah, I would have said I'm a mess and men are trash and I'm really attracted to them. And um, what were some of what, what were some things you learned about dating, you know, in your 20s, you know, and even if it's just like men are weird, right? And I'd be like, yeah, they are. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Did you ever meet your dad? Yeah, yeah. We just don't have much of a relationship. Um, my parents divorced when I was really young. Um, he's very handsome. Well, look uh, at you. Of course he <laughs> was handsome. You, thank you. Uh, he was a musician. And I think, you know, my ear for sound and music, I think, comes from him, to be honest. But yeah, I just was really raised by the women in my family. Um, and even some women on his side of the family, to be honest. Um, I kind of, in some ways, except for my Uncle Albert, who, you know, kind of comes later in the book and is, is a truly just really wonderful stand-up guy. Um, I very much grew up in a matriarchy. I don't mind. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think women generally speakers, generally speaking, I find women to be better, more capable leaders, um, is my genuine, genuine sense. Um, so, yeah. Before we talk about your book, I want to talk a little bit about your poetry collection, mm. Prelude to Bruise. It was released in 2014, was an enormous critical smash. You won a Penn Literary Award for it. And I believe you were listening to Beyonce's 7-Eleven when you found out. Yeah, it was... What a time. <laughs> <laughs> Take yeah, us I mean, back to that moment. I mean, I was basically like sitting in this National Book Critics Circle Award. I was sitting on the couch with my roommate, um, listening to music. I think he was because he would like play video games a lot. And I like listen to music just kind of because I like to watch him play video games. I wasn't very good. And, you know, it's one of those things you're on Twitter and people start adding you and you're like, oh, okay. And then like a lot is happening. I'm like, what's and people are going, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? Um, and then I saw the link. And the other thing that was funny about the announcement, I mean, wow, that's exciting. And my roommate hugged each other and then I had to explain what it meant because uh, he doesn't come from the literary world. Um, but, but also I had... Um, written uh, and it had already been edited an essay that is basically a, a shortened version of the first kind of opening of the book in Louisville and, and Matthew Shepard and James Hurt Jr. for the New York Times opinion section. And they'd just been sitting on it for like months and months and months. And I, it was like dead in the water. And I was like, should I pull it? Like I, they'd just gone radio silent. And then right when the National Book Critics Circle announcement went out, they published the essay. Good timing though. That's they nice. Did. Good and momentum. I don't know if they I don't know if it was coincidence or someone was like, oh, wait, don't we have something? And, and then it went live. So it was funny to be listening to Beyonce, who, of course, is notorious for like well-timed kind of like boom, surprise, one, two punch. And that's kind of what it felt like. <laughs> the book documents Boy, a black queer kid in mm -hmm. the South. Um, but you explicitly state that this wasn't an autobiographical book right. and that Boy exists for us all and is our avatar to help us. Mm -hmm. Why did you name Boy Boy? 
Um, well, one, because I was interested and continue to be in the way that simple three-letter word does so much work. If you look at the dictionary entry for boy, it's very long, right? Because it is, it is a, a racial slur. It is a simple noun. It's a reference to gender, to sex, to sexuality, to sexual fetishes, daddy's boy, B-O-I. You know, uh-huh, B-O-I, the racial slur. I think of like Sidney Portier talking about when he's well-grown and an actor and everything being called a boy. You know, and there's a long history of that. There are all these facets. And then, of course, you know, I'm not like other boys. You see all of the, you know, the the feminine queering, you know, with um, queer women like B-O-I, you know, all it's got all of this kind of going on it's a crucible and to me that just felt like isn't that what it is to be in america isn't that identity just all of these things packed into your name and and so that idea connected with grounding it in in a story uh, almost kind of fairy tale like at the beginning of this boy who who lives um with his father at the edge of town, they're kind of isolated, and his mother is gone, and we don't know why. I, I, I never really came to a decision about that when I was working on those poems. Like, did she die? Did she get sick of her husband and leave? Why would she leave and leave her boy? I liked the mystery of it, but she had beautiful dresses. Um, I love fashion, as I've mentioned before, in design. I would study Alexander McQueen's fashion shows all throughout college. I would just watch them religiously. Um, So I just imagined that she left behind this closet of haute couture gowns. And what would it mean um, for this boy you know, as queer boys often do, start experimenting with the dresses or maybe putting on her shoes. And for the father who is either grieving in some way a loss of a partner, I would imagine that would be pretty triggering for the father. Both maybe the father's homophobic as he turns out to be, but also because it's like, don't you dare touch those clothes. Like those, you know, our loved ones, when they leave, their their belongings become very precious, you know? Um, And I think that's very reasonable. So it just created this like engine of like, well, boys are going to keep, you know, he's going to keep growing and risking and being a parent is hard and stress often leads to tense moments. And it just seemed like such a powerful dynamic to create poems. Um, And so we just see boy kind of grow up in that space and then run away from it um, and keep running. What happens when you leave a really toxic dynamic, but you leave so quickly, you know, for survival and you end up in a safer place, but you have had no time to process what just happened, you know? And I think, and I've certainly had that. I know a lot of people had that kind of experience. And often what happens is you end up kind of recreating that dynamic for yourself. You know, you leave one crappy boyfriend and boop, here you are dating another crappy boyfriend in the exact same way. Yeah, you're trying to work through some of the patterns in your life to see if somehow it could end up in a better, in a better place. Exactly. And so that you're absolutely right. And so that's, that's what you see boy really just each relationship or lover is is a iteration of, of this dynamic and and he's really grappling with it and becomes you know a pretty in some ways obviously I have a lot in common with boy right but you know I think with boy I wanted to show what it means when that person does not get help right by the end he's an adult he's kind of a dangerous person it's somewhat unsettling it felt almost like a sketch of who you could have been yes yeah You released your new book, How We Fight for Our Lives, 
to great fanfare. Congratulations. Thank it just you won so the much. Kirkus Prize. Thank you. It is extraordinary. The book documents your life from childhood to your mother's death in 2011, which I do want to talk about. Mm-hmm. You stated that your mom was a compelling and mysterious figure and that you wanted to communicate that sense of danger that you were fascinated by, especially since she got that from her mom. So dangerous in what way? Um, that there was a risk of asking too many questions, Mm. you know, uh, that my mom was a very alluring, warm. She loved to laugh. She loved to talk and have conversations. She loved to have fun. She was smart. She She read three newspapers a day. Very opinionated about politics and culture, you know, and wanted to be a part of the ongoing cultural conversation that I've definitely inherited that like, I want to be in the conversation. Let's do it, you know. But also, it's funny, you know, there's a way in which you can be and I think I'm like this too. Um, People assume I'm giving them everything because I'm engaging like all those kinds of dynamics. But there's a way in which you can be like, look over here, look over here. I'll talk to you about this, 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 this. We can do that, that, that 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 and then you have this whole private world over to yourself you know and so my mom was like that there was so many and i only realized it really when she passed away how little i actually knew about my mom and i think that's true just generally for our parents there's a lot we don't know about them but i think she protected a lot of herself and i think you know certainly you know her decision to practice buddhism past relationships that had or had not worked out you know i don't think she wanted to necessarily talk about it but yeah and then then my grandmother um i have early memories of my grandfather who died when i was very young and he was a very scary man he was very scary in what way i remember he had a lazy boy chair um, that was all beat up and everything, and it was like his chair. And listen, I know a lot of you know households in America have that idea, but I remember that even when he was gone, it could be the middle of the afternoon when it was like he's not coming home for hours. I was terrified to sit in that chair. Mm. I was so scared, you know. And and I was very young, but I think that communicates like some intuitive sense of. Oh, you know what I mean? And he was he was stormy. I found him very unpredictable. Sometimes I could come, you know, and he'd be really nice and wanted to make a soup and da da da. And then sometimes the smallest thing and he would be yelling or just mean. It was it, I found it very scary. But my grandmother and I, of course, never talked about it. And certainly when he was alive, and certainly not after he passed away. And and I think there was just a lot there that was not discussed, that becomes this silence. And I think sometimes people, you know, with pain, they lock it up in like a cupboard inside themselves and they can, they throw away the key um, because they, I think they're afraid that if they open it up, you know, they just, they, they wouldn't be able to handle it. And I think my mom and my grandmother both had that dynamic. I never have. <laughs> I never have. I've always wanted to talk about the thing like it's so loud and bright and neon and can't you hear it can't you see this noise this monster in the room you know we have to talk about it i've i've just always felt that way but going back to the book you you also have stated that you felt it was critical to think about the stereotypes that await black women in american literature and that the image of a black single mom raising a gay kid in the south comes off like a smoke bomb Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And you wanted to honor how you would have perceived them at the time, mm-hmm. but also make sure it was clear that they had a life and stories in 
fights beyond you, that they right. existed without you. How mm-hmm. difficult was that to do? It was pretty difficult because, yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't understand all of this as a kid, certainly when I'm 12 or 13. So I need, you You have to see to a certain extent the limits of what I understood at the time, but also, of course, the book, the entire point of the book is here's what I've learned as I'm recounting and organizing these memories for you as a writer. So, yeah, I had to decide, is this a moment where we just stay with the kind of naive perspective or is this a moment when we can open it up and kind of go big picture? Is it a, is this the right time or is it distracting? Should I do it later? Should I do it before? And yeah, and, and how do you give the sense of a character having a rich life beyond the pages? How do you nod to it with enough signals? My mom comes home and she's tired. It's hot. You can you can almost feel the weight of her workday yeah. based on how she walks into the living room in the opening chapter. And I hoped that you would at least for a moment kind of imagine what her workday might be like, though we never go there with her in the book, you know. Um, and I felt that was important, you know, as, as a man writing this book. I wanted to be conscious, even though I am gay, of the way misogyny can inform our editorial decisions and our creative decisions. And I think one of the way it manifests is that we can turn the women in our stories into literary devices where they exist only to clarify something about us, the protagonist. Mm. You know what I mean? They, they exist in service of our agenda. And so that's complicated and because it, it is my story. It is my personal history, you know. And also, you know, that's not in keeping with the broader um, intention of the project. We are fighting for our lives, you know. So even if I genuinely don't understand something that's low stakes or if my mother or my grandmother in the book do something that is without question the wrong thing. I felt it was important to at least not to listen. There may, may there may be some complicated reasons for why they're doing or not doing what they're doing in the book. The writing a memoir relies quite a bit on memory, mm-hmm. and you've said this about memory: mm-hmm. you don't just have a memory randomly; we react to it. It acts upon us. And you go on to state that you wanted to capture the way our memories and our desires and our anxieties are always with us. They're that passenger with us mm-hmm. as we're making our way across the landscape. Said, so why the combination of memory, desire? And anxiety. That's an interesting trifecta. Um, I think memories for a lot of us are rooted in what happened and what we wanted to happen, right? I think a lot of the memories that become formative, not just like the passive, like what did you eat for breakfast yesterday, but the like kind of this was a defining moment in my life. The co- It's kind of framed, I think, in our brains by between this is what happened, this is what should have happened, or this is what I wish happened, this is what I thought was going to happen, you know, and, and that kind of colors it. Is it a ha- And I think basically that's the difference between a happy memory and a sad memory. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the happy memory is I wanted that bike and I got that bike, you know, or I got something even better. Right. Or the sad memory is I thought he was the one and he wasn't the one. He broke my heart, you know, and that's what defines how we kind of organize it in our brain. And then and then there's anxiety. Do we hold on to this memory? Do we share it? with other people. And I think under that, whether we are writers or not, I think there's constant anxiety about, are we right? Do we even remember it as we think we do? 
And so I think we have anxiety about these formative memories, these stories we've held onto about ourselves. Are we deceiving ourselves? You know, and if you can't be confident about your memory, do you even know who you are? Um, and so <laughs> that's a lot. And I'm really interested in it. And I think just always, always, even if I'm writing a poem that's about a false memory, right, where I'm like making a character, that dynamic, I think, kind of has the whole world in it. And it's what makes writing for me rich, um, but certainly writing the memoir, all of the challenges of it. But like I said, with my, having my head down while writing a poem, I think that that just gives me so much to focus on. And when we live in this world, in this America, where it's just like a constant state of a loss of control, I think the rigor of unpacking that triumvirate of memory just is, is really rich and enriching. Your writing is really powerful. That feels like such an understatement. <laughs> it's lyrical, it's urgent, it's captivating. And there's a passage in the book that I think really takes that trifecta, that memory and desire and the anxiety in the way that you describe a time when you got home after your mother died in 2011. And I think it will give our listeners a sense of your prose and its extraordinary emotional weight if you could read it for of us. Of course. Thank okay. you. The air was noisy with crickets chirping and leaves rustling in the breeze. With my eyes closed, all the trees shifting in the night sounded like faraway ocean waves. I walked slowly down the long gravel driveway between the house and the road. About halfway, I fell to my knees. I ran my hands through the dirt, pushing the stones, then pulling them back in handfuls as my tears stained them. It didn't matter how I acted anymore. A friend told me once that after her father died, she cried so intensely a blood vessel in one of her eyes burst. It had seemed like an impossible marvel when she told me at the time, but now I knew. Tears don't always just fall. Sometimes they rip through you, like storm-painted gusts instead of mere raindrops. Thank you, Saeed. Thank you. There really is nothing like the death of a parent. Nothing. I had a very, very complicated relationship with my father, mm. um, but I did love him mm -hmm. very, very much. And... I found out that he had died en route to trying to see him right before he died. Oh. And I started wailing. There were noises coming out of me that mm -hmm. I didn't even know existed. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that they ever will come out again uh -huh. quite in that way. I, exactly the same. Yeah, I was like, I crying and, you know, the way I captured my tears in that scene and the way I've never, I had never cried like that before. Right. I hope I never cried like that since. Um, and yes, sounds and I would, you know, you're wailing, you, you wail until your throat hurts and then you just start coughing or, you know, I would wake up um, in, in the weeks and months after my mom died and, you know, you're kind of hung over because it's an intense, that, that level of keening really is, is a, an intense physiological experience. Your muscles yes. are sore. And so you wake up hung over though you were totally sober the night before. And I remember, you know, if you ever have cried a lot in your sleep and you wake up and the tears are dried on your face and you can kind kind of feel it on your skin. And I'd be like, what, what's going on? And then once I was conscious enough to remember, I start crying again, you know, and just the first right, few seconds you don't of waking wake up, up. Uh -huh. when you wake up, you don't always remember yeah, like, like where am I? what's going on? Why do I feel sad? Oh, that's right. Yeah. And the, um, 
the finality of death with one of the people who made you, I think is such an overwhelming and fluid and evolving revelation because what happens is, and it takes like, I feel like a full year or two for you to kind of process this is you keep remembering all the things that will never happen again. Right. And you don't remember them all at once. You just don't. But you're like, oh, we'll never, that that spinach enchilada dish she made, that'll never have happened. No one can make it just like the way she made it. Oh my gosh, do I have any saved voicemails? I can't remember her voice anymore. I know. You know, and that and, I, and that actually happened in Barcelona, I um, which was where the end of the book, I actually got my phone stolen. And it was like, okay, whatever, a phone can be replaced. What? And then I'm on the plane on my way back to New York City. And I realized, ah, oh, shoot, the last few recordings of my mom's voice. So now I'm crying again. It's just, you know, I, I had a ring of hers that I loved and I it kept with me. And then one day I lost the damn ring, you know, and Cheryl Strait has written about this. This kind of just, oh, and it's just at some point, I think you slowly but surely learn to just let it go. You just 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 surrender right. to the revelation because it's too much to fight it. But at the beginning, in particular, it is just oh, and, and you know, at the end of Sula, Toni Morrison, one character has died, and the other characters years later reconciling and older herself, and it's just described as circles and circles of sorrow, and that's what it is: deep grief, and it can you know all kinds of relationships. If and that's the other thing. It's a proof of love, you know, right. like, and like you said, your complicated relationship with your father does not negate the vibrancy of the love, you know, right. even, it, even if you couldn't currently access it, it was, it clearly was in your mind and in your body and grief is like love is almost like gasoline reserves in your body and you don't know how much is there until it's all burned out and you're like, whoa, I had no idea I felt this strongly. And so that could be a loved one, a friend, a pet. And I often talk about pets or coworkers or former teachers. I talk about secondhand grief often in, in yes. conversation. Yes. It's important because, you know, at least when it's your parent, no one who has any kind of compassion will tell you you're overreacting. They would have to be just a monster to say that, right? But because of American culture's relationship to grief, we feel guilty for the secondhand grief. It was just a dog. Oh, you when your seen... mother's dog dies in the book, oh my I was gosh. I was a wreck. Oh, poor Kingsley. And I she was, was a wreck. wreck. Yeah, and you see that, and that's why I wanted to include it because my grandmother, who's not an animal person, like just really was not being compassionate. But I knew, and so that's the only the only thing worse than than the reality of grief itself is the way the rest of our lives then kind of stacks on top of it. No, it's true. It's oh. absolutely. I also lost somebody very close to me recently. She called me every day. She was like my mother. She really mm-hmm. was. And and because she called me every day, I didn't think right. about the messages. And and I literally was going through all of my old phones. Where's my Where's a message mm-hmm. from Maria? I didn't delete. Where's my, mm-hmm. because we said she called me every day. Every day yeah. She called me Mama because oh. she used to take care of my dogs. And be like, Hello, Mama. Oh, and I'm like, Oh, why don't God. I? Why will I yeah. never have that again? Yeah, I mean it. You know. Writing about the experience of losing my mom was important because it's a fact of my life. But also I think it was important to my coming-of-age story because it was the most humanizing thing I had ever experienced. For all of the things I went through, nothing 
helped me viscerally understand my humanity, my relationship to people, the way we need each other, what we mean to each other, what we can do for one another, truly in our moments of vulnerability. Grief was the only thing that created the situation where that was tested and proved, you know? And I think, you know, in the book, it's kind of, it's the one of the last kind of real fights you see is like, oh my gosh, you know? Um, but it felt so important to honor that experience for readers. Now, there are so many parts of how we fight for our lives that took my breath away. Mm-hmm. Your mother's life and death were, were just one storyline throughout the book. The other is your relationship to sex, your relationship to sexuality, your relationship to other men. Um, one of the most um, riveting parts of the book is when you articulate and describe the uh, horrifying assault that you are victim to on New Year's Eve in 2007. Now, you say in the book, you write in the book that you nearly died that night, but that night also saved your life. It did. So can you talk to us a little bit about how that experience nearly did both? Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of nearly dying, um, and unfortunately, this is such a banal experience. Uh, in America, if we if we think about you know the frequency of violence in, in the context of sex, people meeting guys at bars and parties, you know, so many stories I've heard. But you know, I met this guy at a New Year's Eve party. He was really hot. He was he's you know presented himself as straight, which whatever. Um, and and as soon as we and we were very drunk, and and I think alcohol or, or drugs, you know, people often use them to overcome obviously their inhibitions, but also often their internalized homophobia, right? Or internalized sexism just to get, you know, loose enough to like access whatever we're trying to access. And that's what happened with both of us. And with him, I think he was overwhelmed. I think it was like Icarus getting too close to the sun, you know, and he just kind of fell apart. Um, and the thing about men in America uh, is that when men in America fall apart, they take other people down with them, right? Um, and so he wasn't just spiraling and having a, a mental breakdown. He was fighting me um, and, and trying to beat me up. And so we wrestled and he was very big, you know, football player build, very, very tall, um, incredibly strong. And, you know, all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, you're on the other end of all of that. And I understood his fear. He was crying. He was very scared. You would have thought I was beating him up, you know, based on the looks on his face. But it felt like he wanted to kill you. Yeah, and and he could have, right? I mean, whether that was his intention or not, he was so strong that he could have... if you know, moved his arm one way. And if I didn't catch it and I could have slipped, hit my head, you know, all kinds of things could have gone wrong intended or not. And I I was trying to prevent that. So that's how I could have died. The way it saved my life was that I think these are dark miracles, but they're still miracles. These moments when a situation or person is so awful and, and, and so clearly toxic, you understand the stakes Mm. you know what i mean and it's kind of like you know you have a moment where someone just says something to you that's so shitty just so incredibly inappropriate and cruel you know and of course it's deeply hurtful but also you don't even have to waste time being like maybe they're right you're like no that was awful i'm staying away from that person you know and i felt like my night with him it was so clear that i could have died it was so clear that my self-hate and my shame had like 
slowly but surely led actually both of us to that room because clearly he was on a journey too that I walked out of that room grateful to be alive feeling ambivalent as to whether I deserved it but I was like okay you know there has to be a reason you know there has to be a reason I walked out of that room alive and I think I slowly but surely started to fight for my life. I slowly but surely started to, and it's like clawing your way kind of to the surface of your well or whatever. But yeah, I I think that's the, and that's the crucial turn of the last act of the book is both grieving my mom, but also um, beginning to understand that we are given a life, but then very immediately we have to fight for it. It is not something we can take for granted just because we're born. We are going to have to fight to earn, I think, each day that we are are granted. Um, and, you know, I wish there was another way I'd come to understand that. But for me, that that night was how I came to understand it. The moment where once the man that is beating you up passes out mm-hmm. and you are able to escape, that you... Try to give him water before mm-hmm. you go mm-hmm. is the moment I just lost mm. every possible way to hold myself together. Oh. The resilience of your spirit in that moment is just palpable. Mm. I mean, I just it's it's it, it's it's complicated, right? Like empathy. I, I've been thinking it because people have been like, you're so imp-. and I'm like, well, you know. Empathy is somewhat neutral, Um, you know, like maybe obviously I should have gotten away from him as soon as possible, you know, but I just, I felt so deep and I still do. I I feel deeply sad for him and every other person he's probably hurt before or since. That's not a one-time thing. I mean, no, we, it never is. We know, we know human nature, right? And and that that makes me sad. You know, I try to imagine what his family must be like, what his coming of age must have been like to become someone like that. And the fact that I know and recognize and have recognized so many other men like that, it makes me sad. The toxicity of misogyny, of internalized homophobia is such that it can drive you crazy. And so to see someone someone suffering like that even though you know i was the victim of violence when he passed out i just i i felt i don't know i just the need for some kind of compassion and that maybe this was the first bit of compassion he had gotten in a very long time and he probably doesn't even remember he probably woke up and was like why is the floor wet and why is this glass of water next to my head you know and i thought about stealing his wallet I, I'll admit, you know, I'm not a total angel, you know, because it was like this complicated set of emotions, you know. Um, um, but I, I think in the end, we have more to gain from not excusing, not letting violence and harm off the hook. He should not have done that. It's not okay. I didn't deserve it. But in trying to compassionately, and from a safe distance, right, I'm safe when I'm writing about it, right, but compassionately trying to understand holistically what what are the, the what are what's the systemic dynamic that created that figurative room? To me, I think there's more to gain from going there. How did your family members respond to the book? Compassionately, 
um, they're proud of me. They're they're proud of the book. They said they liked it, which was also what you about know, your grandma? What did she think? Um, grandma Mildred, she she was like, I liked it. She was like, you know, I gotta tell you, I forgot to wash dishes. She was like, I stopped washing dishes because I was reading it, and she was actually, I'm looking at them. I still haven't done them, you know. Um, and I was like, that's high praise, you know. Someone stops what they're doing is kind of neat. Um, and she was like, you know, the way you wrote about your mother at the end was very beautiful. Um, with the beginning of the book where harm is coming, you know, from both sides, but it's a really fraught um, time for the two of us. And that's what I was very nervous about. She just said it brought back a lot of memories. Mm. That was it. Um, and then the middle and she started giggling and she was like, and I don't know if this is the word, but the middle's kind of raunchy. And then I was like, oh gosh, you know, she read, not just like the vulnerability. Well, I think, of, did like, you tell her just to read the beginning and I the did. end? I did. I like, I told her like you the scenes her. with my mom and everything, you know, cause you're like, I don't know what's appropriate, but you know, she liked it. My, my um, mom's sister uh, called me and was like, you were a hoe. And we like laughed. I was like, yeah, I've been a hoe. Um, and then, and then, you know, we really went there and had actually one of the more candid conversations we've ever had. Good. And that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and she said, you know, about Phoenix, Arizona, this this guy, she said, I think you were trying to kill yourself. And I've thought that. And I was like, and she, she was sobbing and she was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you were going. And I was like, listen, there's so much we don't know about our loved ones. And right. that doesn't mean we don't love each other. You know, we're, we're, when are we going to have these conversations? You know, it's it's difficult. And I think we need to ha- try to have them, but understand that it's difficult. In addition to all of the blockbuster reviews and the Kirkus Prize, you told the St. Louis Dispatch this, and it's it's something that I wanted to ask you about. You said, I'm living a dream come true, but at what cost? Sometimes it's almost paralyzing. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if mm-hmm. that sort of giving of everything mm-hmm. that you're doing right now, mm-hmm. just putting everything out for people to have. Mm-hmm. Um, is it hard? It can be. I think the, the paralyzing is basically all the things you need to know from the, those years of my book, you know, from those years of my life. You now know, if you've read the book, you now know the the kind of defining dynamics, moments, memories, wants. It's all there. There's no more secrets. Right. And that... You know, I'm not ashamed of it, but that is a lot to kind of have out there. That is a very rare human experience. Most of us will never know <laughs> what that is like, you know, what it what it's like for your grandmother to know about your entire sexual history, for example. Whoa. Vivid <laughs> detail. <laughs> Vivid is, again, an understatement. Vivid is the understatement, you know, just like, what is that? Like, huh, you know, and and it, and it she's been so kind, you yeah. know, um, and it's been great to, to call my aunt the day after the Kirkus ceremony and explain, and she just, she was silent, and she then was trying to, and I was like, I under, she was like, I don't know, what to, and I was like, I understand. But she understood how she, big it is. Absolutely, because okay, she, she just, I could just hear her jaw drop, Good. and then she just said, Carol. You know, and it just, and I was like, I, and she was like, Sight, I'm sorry, I'm trying to, but just, and I was like, I know, and you know, she's tearing up on the phone and I'm tearing up because the, the, whoa, you know, so yeah, that, that's what I mean when I say it's paralyzing is yeah. that you kind of, where do you go from there, from that kind of moment, from that kind of truth is something I'm figuring out in real time. If I've learned anything from the book, um, you know, I think admitting that it's a work in progress, that I don't have all the answers and I never will, but I'm going to keep trying, you know, I think is thus far the best strategy <laughs> from, from not feeling just totally frozen by it. 
Saeed Jones, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us in your extraordinary, extraordinary book, How We Fight for Our Lives. Thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much. You can learn more about Saeed Jones and his work at readsaeedjones.com. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank AC Hotels by Marriott for their generous support of this podcast. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.